look this morning at the subject of fundamentalism. Uh, that term, uh, fundamentalism, was coined in 1920. A magazine editor had just attempted the, a pre-convention meeting in Buffalo, New York of the Northern Baptist Convention. And uh, the convention was going liberal at that time. And there were some men in the convention who wanted to uh, deliver the uh, organization, the convention, from liberalism. And uh, so they stood up and they attempted to, uh, to uh, r uh, remove the liberals from the convention. And it was a great battle. But it was in that arena of controversy that the term fundamentalism was born. <laughs> in 1920, Curtis Lee Laws coined that term. And he said, these men are men who will, be, who will do battle royal for the fundamentals of the faith. And you've got a name today of people that are, they call themselves evangelicals. Uh, that term is to be is so broad, it's almost meaningless. There was a time an evangelical was somebody who was uh, believed in the, the necessity of conversion and believed in the authority of the scriptures and uh, the importance of evangelism. But uh, that term basically is just is really meaningless today for all practical purposes. But um, let me uh, read a couple of things that uh, I think are relevant. I want to read uh, something to you by John Piper. Probably John Piper is the leading, uh, uh, the leading teacher in America of Calvinism. Uh, actually, he's the moving spirit behind what is called the New Calvinism, the attempt to embrace uh, Calvinism and uh, uh, the, basically the charismatic movement. But he wrote a book, uh, he, wrote, uh, a, uh, he wrote a paper called 20 Reasons Why I Don't Take Pot Shots at Fundamentalists. This is John Piper now. It says, they are humble and respectful and courteous and even funny, <laughs> uh, at least the ones I've met. They believe that truth really matters. They know that the Bible calls for some kind of separation from the world. They have backbone and are not prone to compromise principle. They put obedience to Jesus above the approval of man even though they fall short like others. Their social action is helping the person next door like Jesus, which doesn't usually get written up in the newspaper. They tend to raise law-abiding, chaste children, in spite of the fact that Barna, a pollster, says that evangelical kids in general don't have any better track record than the non-Christians. They still sing hymns. They are not breathless about being accepted in the scholarly guild. They are good for the rest of evangelicals because of all this. <laughs> I want to read uh, something that I think is in some ways astounding. This is by R.C. Sproul. R.C. Sproul is probably, again, one of the leading Calvinists in America today and probably has done more to, to spread Calvinism than anyone else that I can think of. But he wrote this, and this was just a few, uh, a few years before he passed away. He says, this particular law has end around honesty. <laughs> Talking about a law that was passed in the state of Georgia. He said, when we try to have our way while hiding our convictions, we lose everything we seek. It is no new insight to note that in America, the evangelical church is worldly and anemic. We are so earthly minded that we are no heavenly good. The anemia comes from the worldliness. 
But whence comes the worldliness? Like any other sin, we have opinions or options for placing its advent. We could argue that, we could argue that uh, it began with the latest fad to hit the church. Or we could go back to the beginning, to the garden. Both, uh, both have their advantages. It might be more helpful, however, to see the beginning of this descent at the height of the fundamentalist, mantras, the fundamentalist modernist controversy. There was a great battle in the Northern Baptist Convention and the Presbyterian Church USA where some of the uh, theological conservatives tried to drive the liberals out of these conventions, out of these denominations. Fundamentalism is so named for a fundamental reason. It was a movement that concerned itself with affirming, defending, and maintaining the fundamentals of the faith. As a movement, it affirmed the authority of the Bible. It affirmed the accounts therein of creation, of miracles, of the virgin birth, of the death and resurrection of Jesus. It affirmed the necessity of conversion through faith in the finished work of Christ. It affirmed, in short, the defining issues of historical evangelicalism. Why then isn't the controversy called the evangelical modernist controversy? To get the answer, we must ask another. What is it that distinguishes evangelicals and fundamentalists? Suddenly our problem becomes clear. An evangelical is a fundamentalist that wants the respect of modernists and sells his soul to get it. That is to say... The difference between a fundamentalist and an evangelical isn't the content of their respective beliefs, but the way in which those beliefs are held. Fundamentalists, to their credit, clung to the fundamentals like a pit bull on a T-bone. There was nothing attractive or sophisticated about it, but everyone knew you would never tear the two apart. The evangelical, on the other hand, sought to find, at least culturally, a middle ground. Yes, we believe in the authority of the Bible, but we believe it for nice, professional, academic reasons. Indeed, all that we believe, we believe for nice, professional, academic reasons, meaning the evangelicals. What separates evangelicals from fundamentalists is that we evangelicals don't breathe fire, and we have fancy degrees hanging in our studies instead of pictures of Billy Sunday. <laughs> We evangelicals are the, now listen to this. We evangelicals are they who cut this deal with the modernists. We will call you brother if you will call us scholar. Please don't misunderstand. The point isn't that we, uh, isn't that the right way to believe in the fundamentals is to be stupid. Instead, the point is that the right way to believe the fundamentals is with a holy indifference to what others think about us. Anything less leads us right to where we are. <laughs> that is, any movement that begins with a fear of those who are seeking to win has already been won by those that are feared. We thought we were defending the fundamentals, but we were giving away the store. Like the Gwinnett County officials, our failure to demonstrate the courage of our convictions led to exactly what we didn't want. <laughs> Weakness disguised as compromise compromise our convictions and expose our weakness. Because we were too worldly not to care, to not care, we have become too worldly to matter. We still follow the same path today for fear of offending the lost. We will not tell them they are lost. Fear of looking narrow and closed-minded, we have made peace not just with the deadly 
secularism of modernism, but with the doubly deadly, with the doubly deadly follow of, uh, folly of postmodernism. There the culture it reflects are uncertainty, refusing to make affirmations, just like us. In our pride, we have embraced a humility that won't stand for anything. Our shepherd, however, calls us to a different path. He tells us that having those outside the faith revile us for our faith is something to be sought, not something to be avoided. That those who experience the disdain of the world for his name's sake are blessed. The fundamentalists of the last century were laughed at and scorned, and for that they earned the praise of Jesus. May we find the courage not only to affirm the fundamentals, but may we be given a double portion of the spirit of the fundamentalists. They fought the good fight while we collaborated. They kept the faith while we merely kept our position in our communities. May we learn to fear no man, to fear God, for such is the beginning of wisdom. <laughs> what, a wonderful, what a marvelous statement by a, an evangelical. Then you wonder, well, why aren't they one? I want to look this morning at the nine weapons in the arsenal of Pauline fundamentalism. Nine weapons in the arsenal of Pauline fundamentalism. That word fundamentalism is a broad term, but I think if you just do the things that Paul did, say what Paul said, do what Paul did, then, then you're a fundamentalist. Though the term is new, uh, it's basically historic Christianity. Uh, J. Gresham Machen, a great uh, defender of the faith uh, back in the 1920s and 30s, uh, said uh, uh, that, uh, well, I don't use the term fundamentalist. He said, well, all fundamentalism is is just historic Christianity. Why, why use a term, put a new label on an old faith? Basically what he was saying. Well, let's look at these nine weapons. If you would, let me just look at uh, some major passages. We'll read these and we'll look at, the, we'll look at these things. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 is perhaps the greatest separation passage in the Word of God. I hope you'll write these down. These are some, we need to look at these great separation passages. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 18. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord with, hath Christ with Belial? And what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord. And touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. If you would turn to Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Galatians 2, 11 through 14. Another great separation passage. Paul writing, of course. But when Peter was come to Antioch, I was stood him to the face because he was to be blamed. For before that certain came from the Gentiles, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew himself and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision, the Judaizers, those who were teaching you had to be uh, 
uh, obey the Old Testament law in order to be saved. And the other Jews dissembled, played the hypocrite. The other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas was also carried away with their dissimulation, their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of the Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Jews? Why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews, who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles? And then if you would, turn to the book of Jude, chapter 1, and verse 3. Jude, verse 3. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And then lastly, one final verse. Turn back to the book of Philippians, chapter 4. And come down to verse 9. Philippians 4, 9. Again, of course, Paul writing. He says, Those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. In the Word of God, we have a model of fundamentalism. Paul is that model. Uh, Paul uh, defend, was a great defender of the faith. First and Second Timothy are really more of polemical epistles. We call them pastoral epistles. But in those two epistles, Paul mentions about 11, 12 names of false teachers, of compromisers. Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this world, and so on. Well, they're polemical. Paul was, a, uh, Paul was a fun, what we call a fundamentalist today. In Paul, we see the model of all that we ought to be. Uh, we're commanded to contend for the faith. He that's not contending is compromising. <laughs> and in this, we see Paul is the model. How did Paul contend for the faith? He named names. He may, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ named names. Um, uh, all through the Word of God, uh, Jeremiah and the Old Testament, these men name names. Uh, these are some very important elements now in, in fundamentalism. I want to talk about the nine weapons in the arsenal of Pauline fundamentalism. <laughs> There's nine weapons that we have. If you read Pilgrim's Progress, uh, we read about Mr. Valiant for Truth, whose sword was drawn and his face was all bloody. In the medieval iconography, uh, Paul the Apostle is pictured with a sword because he contended for the faith. He fought for the faith. Well, let's look at these, let's look at these important lessons, all right? First of all, we ought to be aware of these nine weapons. We ought to be able to use them skillfully, uh, use them understandingly. Uh, but these are some very important weapons that Paul the Apostle used in his attempt to defend the faith. First of all, the weapon of the Holy Spirit. You know, we can get up here and talk about fundamentalism and uh, what we ought to do and what we ought to believe and the way we ought to behave. But, you know, unless the Holy Spirit persuades you, uh, you're not going to become a fundamentalist. <laughs> uh, you'll just probably be, a, you'll be an evangelical. 
I got a feeling that probably most of you men studying for the ministry probably will not be fundamentalist. <laughs> I know that's a terrible thing to say. But listen, the Word of God is quite clear. It's a battle. And unless you're willing to conduct warfare, uh, the, the, the church is in, in a desperate plight today. We're in a great battle today. We're in a war today for the faith. And uh, it, uh, it, uh, we need to learn how to use these nine weapons if we're going to defend the faith. First of all, this first weapon is the Holy Spirit. He's the spirit of truth. The Holy Spirit persuades hearts. He touches hearts. He persuades you to the arguments of fundamentalism. And uh, he alone can persuade. Uh, you can use logic and good judgment and exegete the scriptures uh, carefully. But unless the Holy Spirit moves your heart and persuades you, you're not going to be a fundamentalist. Uh, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit alone quickens the Word of God and uh, makes the preaching of the Word of God persuadable. Another great, by the way, we all love truth. It's interesting, in a number of places where the Word of God talks about calling men out, He calls them men of truth. Be a man of truth. Do you love truth above everything? <laughs> God, uh, uh, do you ever just stop? Have you ever stopped and thanked the Lord for truth? Isn't it wonderful to have truth? Be men of truth. Love the truth. Advance the truth. Stand for the truth. Then the other we another weapon is the weapon of God's word. Uh, make people argue with God's word. Don't let them argue with you. I was watching some years ago. There was a uh, preacher on uh, Phil Donahue. Uh, this was a talk show that was popular years ago, uh, long before uh, your time, most of you. And... Uh, he got everybody upset. A firestorm came down on his head. He said, uh, Phil Donahue asked him, he said, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven? <laughs> and he said, yes, I do. And boy, people got upset. They got up out of their seats and they began to scream at him. And uh, this one, one uh, Jewish lady got up and said, I've uh, helped cripple children all my life and uh, you're uh, telling me that I'm not going to go to heaven? And it just went on and on. Well, he should have made them argue with the Word of God. Well, don't, don't blame me. I'm just telling you what Jesus said. Jesus said, I am the door. Uh, Jesus said, I am the way. I am the light. This Christianity is very narrow. And this whole uh, secular world doesn't understand that. That's what should, he should have made Phil Donahue and these people argue with the Word of God. Well, just, you know, uh, blame Jesus. Don't blame me. Jesus said, I'm the door. There's only one way to heaven is through Jesus Christ. If you don't go through him, you're not going to make it. That's what Jesus said. See, just make them, make them argue with the scriptures. Don't let them argue with you. <laughs> but uh, that's uh, our, our, great, our greatest weapon uh, is the word of God. Weapon number three is the weapon of public exposure. Go back to Galatians chapter two. Paul says, I confronted Peter before them all. Now, by the way, Paul was at this point relatively new. He had been, uh, you know, three years in Arabia, had been up in, uh, in uh, his home in, uh, in Tarsus and so on. And they brought Paul down and uh, they saw that uh, Paul saw that uh, Peter and uh, Barnabas and even uh, many of the others were carried away. And uh, when uh, Peter had given the gospel to the Gentiles, uh, the law was done away in one sense. But uh, Peter, being a, a man-pleaser and a compromiser, when he saw these uh, Judaizers that came up from James, up from Jerusalem, uh, he quit eating with the Gentiles. Because as a good Jew, you're not supposed to be eating with the Gentiles. The Gentiles are dogs. Uh, they're barbarians. Uh, you're not to even be under the roof of a Gentile, let alone uh, eat with them. 
Well, uh, 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 Peter had brought these men the gospel. They had gotten saved. And uh, so, uh, the, you know, they were no longer under the law. Peter wasn't under the law. Christ told uh, Peter that. You go and you give the gospel to these Gentiles. These Gentiles are no longer unclean. You give them the gospel. Well, many of these Gentiles got saved. And, but when these Jews came up from James, uh, uh, Peter and all the others got up from the table and quit eating with the Gentiles for fear of what these uh, Judaizers would say and think. Oh, well, Peter's compromising the law. And uh, Paul got very upset. Paul said, uh, Peter, by refusing to eat with these Gentiles, you're teaching them they've got to keep that law to be saved. The gospel was at stake here. And so by Peter's behavior and the behavior of Barnabas, they were teaching they needed to keep that law in order to be saved. That got, that got Paul very upset. <laughs> and he says, I, re, I, I, stood, I restood him to his face. He gave him a very brisk uh, rebuke to his face. I, I, I rebuked him before everybody. The, the rebuke was very public. Sometimes we fundamentals, we've got to make our rebukes public to those involved in compromise and those who are selling out the word of God and so on. Well, this is the, uh, here's a, there, there's a, sometimes there's a, pla- there's a very definite place for public exposure. Now, if the offense is private, then the thing needs to be dealt with privately. But uh, Peter's compromise and Barnabas' compromise was public. And that's why Peter said, I, had to re- I stood him with his face. He was to be blamed. And I stood him to his face before everyone, before them all. His rebuke, of, uh, his rebuke was, uh, was a public rebuke. And then he, uh, then he went beyond that. And he, uh, he turned, uh, uh, go back, if you would, to Galatians chapter 2. And come back down to verse 11. But when Peter was come to Antioch, I was to him to the face because he was to be blamed. For before certain came from James, he did eat, eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself. Then you see here that he mentions Barnabas by name. He mentions Peter by name. By the way, now this, uh, this book of Galatians, what we'd call an open letter today. I think some of the fundamentalists, they need to write some open letters to men involved in very serious compromise. And they need some public exposure, some public rebuke. Uh, this was a public letter. This was an open letter. The book of Galatians uh, went to churches, the four, uh, four churches in Galatia. Uh, Derby and Lystra and Antioch of Pisidia and Iconium. And uh, these, this uh, book of Galatians uh, was an open letter in one sense. And in this book, he talks about Peter and his compromise and Barnabas and his compromise. And the other Jews that went along, he called it hypocrisy. Peter proved to be a, a hypocrite. Barnabas was a hypocrite. And so he passed this letter among those four churches. Watch out for Peter. Watch out for Barnabas. Uh, watch out for their compromise. Uh, well, uh, the, the, the open letters sort of a lost art today. But uh, we're, we're looking at what, what does fundamentalism look like? <laughs> That's what I'm trying to help you see today. Sometimes we have to use open letters. Sometimes our rebuke has to be public. And uh, here we see a, a great, great example of this in the Apostle Paul. He's making his rebuke of Peter was public. There in Antioch, he writes an open letter that openly and publicly rebuke, uh, rebukes Peter. All right. And uh, the uh, turn in your Bibles to Matthew 16. 
We're looking at the weapon now of public exposure. Paul, Paul rebuked Peter before them all. But I want you to see some other examples of public exposure. Turn to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16, this is where the Lord Jesus Christ now is dealing with his disciples. This is where he gives them the keys to the kingdom of heaven and so on. But Matthew 16, and come down to verse 17. Matthew 16, verse 17. It says, Jesus, and Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon of Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee that thou art Peter upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, the Roman Catholic Church would teach that this is where the Lord made Peter the Pope. All right? He's given him the keys to the kingdom. Verse 19, And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be loosed in heaven, and so on. And then he charged his disciples, now then, come back down to verse uh, 22. It says, Then Peter, the Lord said he has to go up to Jerusalem now and suffer many things and be crucified. And then uh, here's Peter's response to that announcement. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. Peter's trying to discourage Christ from going to Calvary, from suffering and bleeding and dying for sinners. Now look at the Lord's response to this new pope. He's actually getting off to a very uneven start here. Verse 23, but he turned and said unto Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. Because the first time the pope is inaugurated, the first thing he, the Lord does is call him a devil. <laughs> thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Here the Lord Jesus Christ is publicly rebuking Peter. Uh, causing the devil, get behind me, Satan. Uh, thou art an offense unto me. This thing of uh, public exposure is a very important element, I think, and is one of the important weapons in uh, modern, in, in our fundamentalism. Turn over to, if you would, to uh, come over to uh, uh, Philippians uh, uh, chapter 5, rather. Philippians, uh, or, I'm sorry, Galatians chapter 5. These are some of the great separation passages. Now, I hope you're taking these down and getting some of these in your mind. Galatians chapter 5, verse 11 and 12. says, And I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? Then is the offense of the cross ceased. I would they were even cut off, which trouble you. You see, I wish these Judaizers would mutilate themselves. They're trying to mutilate you and tell you you need to be mutilated if you're going to keep the law. He says, I wish they would mutilate themselves. You know, we've got this idea, well, let's, let's uh, love everybody, tolerate everything. If we just slobber enough and to tolerate enough and love enough, somehow all the evils in the world will go away. A lot of people think that way. Jeremy, just, they like to think the best. Oh, uh, no, now I don't agree with everything he does now, but, uh, you know, we shouldn't be critical and so on. We shouldn't uh, judge not lest you be judged. A lot of people think that way. Well, we see here Paul could be very strong, very firm. The Lord Jesus Christ 
Uh, you know, sometimes it's important to mark them that cause divisions, offenses, uh, cause divisions and offenses among you. Sometimes Christ called Herod that fox. You ever heard say, well, preachers never ought to be involved in politics and never uh, deal with uh, politicians? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ called Herod a fox. Sometimes it's necessary to mark people and identify them. Uh, John the Baptist told those Pharisees, you bunch of serpents, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Uh, Paul, we won't take the time to go there, but talks about the dogs and the circumcision and uh, those that... Uh, those that undermine the faith and destroy the faith. Sometimes it's important to uh, public, uh, publicly expose those involved in compromise and serious error. Uh, sometimes you've got to mark them. Sometimes it's important to label them. How are you going to mark those that cause divisions and offenses without labeling them? Sometimes you've got to label people. Now, by the way, we're always honest. Let's be ethical. Be careful. Do your homework. Uh, make sure you've got all the facts. But sometimes it's very, very important to name names, very important to name, uh, uh, to mark people, identify them. They may, may even have to identify them with certain names uh, and so on. Well, all of the, this is what fundamentalism looks like. <laughs> and by the way, we speak the truth in love. We'll get to that in just a minute. Doesn't mean that we hate people and dislike people that we're mean and cantankerous all the time. Doesn't mean that. It's not what we're talking about. But uh, let's watch Paul. Paul is the model of what a militant fundamentalist ought to be. That word militant simply means aggressive, to be outspoken. doesn't mean that you use violence against people. It just simply means that you're aggressive and outspoken. Paul was a militant fundamentalist in one sense. All right? But we're looking at the weapon of public exposure. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, in many ways, was a wonderful man. He was alarmingly and shockingly inconsistent at times. Uh, in his uh, lectures to my students, uh, not one time does he ever mention any names about being separated. Uh, one of the historians, the, some of the historians marvel as to why Charles Spurgeon never had much of a following. Uh, he really, uh, he, uh, he got voted against uh, a number of times. Uh, he tried to get a very uh, conservative statement of faith in the Baptist Union. It was going liberal. And he stayed long enough. He said, now we need a good statement of faith and force everybody to sign it so these liberals will leave the Baptist Union. Well, there was a board of 100 men that led the Baptist Union uh, uh, there in London. And uh, 80, uh, 95 of those men voted against Spurgeon, saying, no, we don't really need any kind of a statement of faith to secure the orthodoxy of the organization. So uh, 95 people voted against Spurgeon. Only five men voted with him. Well, they're going to take this issue to the floor of the convention. There's going to be about 2,000 people there. And so they're going to be voting on statements of faith. One's going to be very conservative, like, a, uh, like a Spurgeon wanted. Then one was going to be very broad and liberal, and uh, you, any man could find his doctrine in there somewhere, that type of thing. Well, do you know that they voted against Spurgeon 2007? Only seven people voted with Spurgeon to have a conservative statement of faith. And what broke his heart is that many of his students voted against him. Well, uh, many of uh, the historians don't understand that. Well, why, why didn't his, students, his own students vote with him? But if you read his lectures to my students, every, I think it was every Friday he would preach in the chapel of his uh, pastor's college to his students. And in his lectures to my students, you see so many of those sermons and things that he preached. Not one time does he ever mention his battle with the liberals. He never named names. He totally, 
He, he never educated his people in the history of fundamentalism. Never as educated his people in this business of spiritual warfare. He had to fight for the faith and contend for the faith. Though he himself often did contend for the faith. But he never taught his students to defend the faith and stand for the faith. And I think that's why he really never had much of a following. And also he could be alarmingly inconsistent at times. I'm a great lover of Spurgeon, but he's uh, in many ways very, very inconsistent. And this really, uh, really helped uh, minimize his influence. But he had a paper called The Sword and the Trowel. Uh, some years ago, the fundamentalists used to have a great old paper called The Blueprint. And they would deal with all the issues of the day and name names and deal with current trends and movements and things like that. Uh, that uh, paper no longer exists. Uh, we, I think we need a revival of a great paper that uh, uh, basically defends the faith and names names and makes people aware of what's going on today. But uh, anyhow, Spurgeon, had a, his paper was a great paper, but he never would bring any of these things into his pastor's college and never would bring any of these issues into his chapel. Another great weapon in this battle, we have the weapon now of the Holy Spirit, the weapon of God's Word, the weapon of public exposure. We have the weapon of a consistent practice. It's very important to be consistent. <laughs> Don't say one thing and do something else. Oh, consistency, thou art a jewel, Shakespeare tells us. So I think consistency, have great conviction. A conviction is something that you're willing to suffer for and die for even. But it's very, very important to be consistent. Never, never say one thing and then do something else. You have the weapon of ecclesiastical separation. Uh, obedience to the Word of God is the basis of separation. I've heard people say, well, if a, man's, uh, if a man believes in the fundamentals, I can fellowship with him. Or if a man's an independent Baptist, I can fellowship with him. Or if a man preaches the gospel and wins souls, I can fellowship with him. No, obedience to the Word of God is the basis of fellowship. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship. Withdraw thyself from every brother that walketh disorderly. Obedience is the basis of fellowship. Not soundness of doctrine, not the gospel, not soul winning, uh, not being an independent. By the way, I think you ought to do all those things. I think everybody ought to be an independent, fundamental Baptist. I think that's the closest thing to the new. That's what Paul was. Paul was an independent fundamental Baptist. I want to be like Paul, don't you? I want to be as close to the New Testament as I can get. Uh, then you have the weapon of continuity. Uh, fundamentalism needs constant explaining. needs constant defending. One of the old church historians at uh, Princeton back in the 19th century when it uh, was very strong in the, some of these areas. Uh, Samuel Miller said that contending for the faith is like a man rowing upstream, uh, rowing upstream in a rowboat. Uh, going against the stream. And as long as he keeps rowing, he'll be okay. But the minute he quits rowing, he's going to start drifting backwards. Well, the minute we quit contending for the faith, contending for the faith is like rowing upstream against this culture, is it not? And the minute we quit contending for the faith, we're going to start going backward, back downstream. So important that there needs to be a continuity. We need to constantly be explaining and defending fundamentalism. We need the weapon of godly wisdom, I pray the Lord give us wisdom and discernment and good judgment in these matters. The weapon of tears, Paul says, speak the truth in love. Uh, Samuel cried all night because God had to remove Saul from the throne. Paul says, I warned you night and day with tears. Acts 20, verse 31. 
We need to have a compassion and a tenderness and a heart. We speak the truth in love. These are some important things. The weapon of ecclesiastical separation. Uh, the weapon of continuity. The weapon of godly wisdom. The weapon of tears. <laughs> and the weapon of hard preaching. Uh, we need to preach the word of God and we need some hard preaching. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I need hard preaching to keep me straight. <laughs> Listen to what Paul said. He says, Paul, Paul tells us, quit ye like men. <laughs> That's an old Philistine war cry. But Paul says, look, we need to be real men. Quit yourself. Act like a man. Be a man. He's telling the preachers. Listen to what Spurgeon said. It's another quote by Spurgeon. It says, The church of Christ is continually represented under the figure of an army. Yet its captain is the prince of peace. Its object is the establishment of peace, and its soldiers are men of peaceful disposition. The spirit of war is at the extremely opposite point to the spirit of the gospel. Yet, nevertheless, the church on earth has, and until the second advent, must be the church militant, the church armed, the church warring, the church conquering. And how is this? It is the very order of things that so it must be. Truth could not be truth in this world if it were not a warring thing. And we should at once suspect that if it were not true, if errors were its friends. It were not true if errors were its friends. The spotless purity of truth must always be at war with the blackness of heresy and lies. In conclusion, let me share with you my favorite passage in the Pilgrim's Progress. By the way, if you read Pilgrim's Progress, uh, basically it's a, it's a book on fundamentalism. John Bunyan is teaching separation and so on. But uh, without getting into that, but listen, at the end of Pilgrim's Progress, it tells us about Mr. Valiant for Truth. I think in Mr. Valiant for Truth, we see the militant fundamentalist. But he's on his deathbed. And listen to what... Bunyan writes about Mr. Valiant for Truth on his deathbed. He says, After this, it was noised abroad that Mr. Valiant for Truth was taken with a summons by the same post as the other and had this for a token that the summons was true, that his picture was broken at the fountain. He was dying. When he understood it, he called for his friends and told them of it. Then said he, I am going to my father's. And though with great difficulty I have got here, it's not easy being a fundamentalist. It's very difficult. Yet now I do not repent me of the trouble that I have been at to arrive where I am. My sword I give to him that shall succeed me in my pilgrimage and my courage and skill to him that can get it. My marks and scars I will carry with me to be my witness for me that I have fought his battles who now will be my rewarder. When the day that he must go hence was come, many accompanied him to the riverside, into which he went and said, Death, where is thy sting? And as he went down deeper, he said, Grave, where is thy victory? So he passed over, and all the trumpets sounded for him on the other side. When we militant fundamentalists get to heaven, I believe the trumpets will sound for us on the other side. Amen.